following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people, and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer, and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's, directions, or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. Just pray for me. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your spirit who caused your word to be written and who has been at work in Maeve as she has been preparing to speak to us. Lord, may that same spirit dwell in our hearts through faith that we might receive your word to us tonight through your servant Maeve. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good evening. So my name's Maeve. I'm one of the curates here at St. Nick's. And if you're new, you're very welcome. If you're a new student and you've staggered through Freshers Week and you're exhausted, then feel free to chill at this point. And there won't be a test at the end, and it's all on the podcast later. So, But if you do bump into the vicar on the way out, I'm still a curate, so it was brilliant. Your spiritual development has never been rocking like this, and you loved it. So come back again. This evening, as you heard, we're working our way through a sermon series on the book of Galatians. We're going through the book section by section, trying to get under the skin of the text to understand what it meant then when it was written and what it might have to say to us in Durham in 2019. Now, for those of you who haven't been here in previous weeks, previously in Galatians, bit of background... Galatians is one of the very earliest books of the Bible, um, in the New Testament rather, written probably only 20, 25 years after the death of Jesus. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church that he had founded on his great missionary journey. That visit had gone really well. People had responded to his preaching, they'd accepted the gospel, they'd been filled with the Spirit, and a new community was formed. So Paul could safely leave them to it and move on on his journey. Until some worrying news reaches Paul's ears that some rival missionaries have arrived and are leading his lovely Galatians astray by wrong teaching. In particular, they're teaching the Galatians that alongside their newfound faith in Jesus, they should be following the requirements of the Torah. Now, the Torah, as you will all know, was the law given to Moses, which detailed how the people of Israel ought to behave. It specified how and when they should worship God. It set out how the life of the community should be ordered, so it placed some limits on violence, it gave some protections to the poor and vulnerable and the foreigner, and it also governed personal behaviour and holiness with rules about clothing, about ritual cleanliness and food, what you could and couldn't eat, and crucially, with whom you could eat and with whom you were not allowed to eat. And males had to be circumcised as a mark of the covenant with God. Now, Paul understood all of this because he was a Jew himself, And in fact, he'd been rather zealous in defending the Jewish way of life and persecuting Christians until a rather dramatic encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus led him to a very different understanding of the way the world worked and of how God acted in it. So he still calls himself a Jew, but he doesn't follow the rules of the Torah anymore. He no longer gets his identity from being a member of that chosen community marked out by circumcision and following the law. So Paul is pretty seriously unimpressed to find out that people he regards as troublemakers are persuading the Galatian converts, who aren't even Jewish, that they have to follow the requirements of the law. So today's passage that Philip read to us is all about Paul explaining to the Galatian church not just why it's unnecessary for them to follow the law, 
but the fact that the very idea that it might be necessary cuts right across a proper understanding of what God in Jesus has done for them. So I'm going to look at his arguments in a bit of detail. You might want to get your Bibles out at page 1170. I'm going to be, it's quite a complicated passage, as thankfully the boss has given me some cover on. So, but we are, but unfortunately, I'm leaning on some much, much more experienced scholars. Um, in particular, the work of Professor John Barclay, the professor of New Testament studies in the department here, who's one of the world uh, class experts on the work of Paul. But more on John in a bit. It starts off at verse 415. Paul starts by using an analogy that he assumes they're all going to understand, the idea of somebody making a will. I think our Bibles use the word covenant, but in fact, a better translation of the word diatheke is a will or a testament in this context. So if the idea says, Paul, if you've made a valid will setting out the inheritance you're passing on, once that's duly ratified, it can't be changed. Okay. Then at verse 16, Paul slightly randomly suddenly starts talking about when God made a promise to bless Abraham and his seed. So let's pause briefly and remind ourselves what that promise to Abraham was all about. Way back in the book of Genesis, we're told God spoke to the patriarch Abraham and told him to leave his home, his country, and his people and set off on a journey. That might sound familiar to some of you tonight. And if so, I have, you have my sympathies. I did it myself. I came to Durham as a student, left my home, well, my London, anyway, my life down there, and came up here. I was only coming for a year, to be fair, to study theology, but I was in 2006 and I'm still here, so just be warned, frankly. Durham gets under your skin that way. Back to Abraham. So God promised Abraham if he left home, he would lead him to a new promised land. And he said to him, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham trusted in God. He upped and went with his household and his livestock and everything. And it did come to pass. His descendants became a great nation. They finally settled in the land God had promised them, and they were the people of Israel. So back in Galatians, in verse 16, Paul then goes off on this riff about how when God promised to bless Abraham and his seed, it said seed singular, like not seeds plural. So he didn't mean all his descendants. He meant just one descendant, Jesus. Now, you could accuse Paul of nitpicking because he will have known that the word for seed was generally understood as a collective noun. It's like offspring. It could mean one offspring or loads of offspring. But really, of course, he's making a theological point, not a grammatical point. He doesn't deny for a minute that blessings of God have been handed down to Abraham's biological descendants. But through the one particular offspring, Jesus, millions more will receive those blessings promised by God. So by verse 17, we realise Paul is using the idea of a will as an analogy to the relationship between God's promise to Abraham on the one hand and the giving of the law on the other. His argument is that the promise God gave to Abraham and his offspring still holds good. It can't be undermined or nullified by an appendix that comes along 430 years later. And the appendix, of course, is the Torah. And that 430 years is what we're told in Exodus 12 is the length of time that the Israelites were in exile in Egypt. So Paul then in verse 18 starts to explain why the law can't be the source of the promised inheritance. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So what then was the point of the law? Well, a good question. Paul then has a go at explaining this in verses 19 to 25. He doesn't say the law is entirely bad, but he points out its limitations. He says, look, it was less direct than God's promise to Abraham because it was mediated through Moses. 
And that slightly random reference to angels is because by that point there was a view that angels were somehow associated with the giving of the law. And then he says the law was temporary. It didn't exist before Moses. Abraham didn't have the law. And it was never meant to last forever, only until the promise was fulfilled and the Messiah came. Now, there could be a whole sermon just on that, frankly by somebody an awful lot cleverer than me. But it is, a, it is quite a complicated point, and it's worth noting that by the time Paul wrote his letter to the Romans a few years later, he was starting to talk about Christ being the fulfilment of, of the law. So, he, so he's, not, he's not dissing the law, but he is looking at the role and the way in which it develops. But he does acknowledge the law has a limited role to play. Because people were sinful, the law could perhaps play a role in revealing or maybe even limiting sin. And then he says in verse 25 that the law, that the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. Now in the original Greek, it says the law became our paedagogos, which, which was a, a slave childminder, a, a childminder who was like, like a slave who was a nanny, really, who was in, except who was in charge of a child, protecting, disciplining, supervising children until they were old enough to operate by themselves. So the idea of the law as training, while there wasn't before, the, before Christ became, before the Spirit came. But crucially, says Paul, the law cannot impart life. In other words, it can't make us alive, overcome the rule of sin and death to which the world is subjected. Now, pausing, we have to be quite careful not to caricature two approaches to salvation. You know, kind of in the red corner, people who thought they could save themselves by doing stuff. If you just followed the rules carefully enough, fine, no problem, you're saved. And in the blue corner, we have Christians who realize they're only saved by faith in Jesus. It was more nuanced than that. Um, John Barclay, the professor, explains that the Jews at this time, they understood that salvation was a gift from God. They weren't making it themselves. But most of them would also have believed that God gave the gift of salvation only to righteous people who were worthy of such a gift. So they were trying to act as people who'd be recognized as righteous before God by following the law that God had given to Moses. I'm going to pause for quick digression I'm a bit of a John Barclay fangirl, as you can tell, but I'm going to pause for a quick digression into a book he's written called Paul and the Gift. I recommend it to you, but it's like this big. So if you can't face that, I would also recommend to you an excellent episode of the podcast called Talking Theology, in which our very own Philip Fleming interviewed John Barclay about this book, and that's like the idiot's guide. So I read that, I listened to that first, obvs. But then I went, then I have to read the whole book, because like I'm a preacher and you've got to do it properly. So I have read, I mean, read the book. So what John is, and I'm therefore going to traduce it by attempting to give you my understanding of it, and John's not in the order, no, you know, excellent. Okay, so the reason it's important, gift is important, is because Paul talks a lot about gift. It's the Greek word charis, which means a favour or a benefit or a gift, but it's also the word that's translated as grace. So it becomes pretty crucial. And if you've travelled, of course, elsewhere, you know that gifts are seen differently in different cultures. I mean, our assumptions about gifts are not the norm. I learned this the hard way. Many years ago, I used to run a small charity, and every now and again, we get international visitors, and they would almost always come bearing embarrassingly lavish gifts, which we like, didn't really know what to do with, and we didn't have given anything back, so we'd just say, thank you very much, and put them in a cupboard and be a bit embarrassed in English about it. And then we start going to international conferences and realise everybody would give you something, you'd have to give something back. But like, we were a small charity, and we didn't really have any money. So we'd end up in this embarrassing position where somebody would say, hand you a present, and you'd say, well, thank you for this beautiful, handmade, hand-embroidered silk scarf, and may I give you this attractive plastic bi-reel? You'll see it's got our name there, printed quite nicely, and as, as an exchange. But there was something about the giving of gifts that was going on that we didn't know how to interpret, and it was perhaps sometimes a sign of respect, but sometimes it was about other things that we just didn't get there. 
In the ancient world, there was an understanding that gifts were a way of creating social ties and binding people together. So there were two key things to understand. One is that you gave gifts to people who were worthy of them. And the second is that gifts expected reciprocity. They didn't demand it. It's not because obviously it's a gift. But you'd hope for it. They were designed to create a relationship. Uh, John cites the, like the old, there used to be a game of catch in, in, in the ancient world. I throw you a ball, and after a period of time, you throw it back to me. I throw it to you again, and you throw it back to me. If I throw you the ball and you put it in your pocket, we have no game, we have no relationship. This was designed to create some kind of relationship. But this gift to us of the Son of God, or in Paul's language, the Christ's gift of himself, just doesn't fit this category. Because rather than carefully choosing a worthy recipient, the really unusual thing about the Christ gift is it's totally unconditioned. It's given without any reference to the worth of those who are getting it. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what Paul's saying to the Galatians is, listen up, following the law won't make you a fitting recipient of this gift of salvation. Because on that basis, nobody's going to be righteous. He's realised that the saving gift has already been given in Christ without any reference to worth. And if there were any new standard of righteousness which God would, would look at, it would be them living a new life, grounded in faith. But that's the result of the Christ gift, not the condition for getting it. So Paul isn't saying the law wasn't from God or anything like that. But unlike the kind of troublemaker other missionaries who see the Torah as the kind of high point in their history of salvation, Paul refocuses everything on the one completely unique point where something extraordinary happened, the coming of the Messiah. Because Paul had a really clear-sighted view of the world. It was fallen. It wasn't as God intended it to be. Evil abounded. Humans then and now messed things up. The whole world and the people in it were under the power of sin and death. And the law couldn't change that. But God could and did. The God who created the universe stepped into human history, shattering the whole kind of time-space dimension. And because of that one event, that one incredible gift, nothing is ever the same again. And that's how God's promise is really fulfilled. So Paul's not against the Torah rules, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, a matter not for or against. The reason he's so worked up about this is because the troublemakers are telling the Galatians to trust in an outdated way of understanding what God values. John Barker says it's like collecting old sixpences when we don't do shillings and, and pence anymore. And the new currency is simply faith in Christ, acknowledging the only thing of value is Jesus himself. So faith isn't an alternative human achievement, but as John puts it, a declaration of bankruptcy, a radical and shattering recognition that the only capital in God's economy is the gift of Christ crucified and risen. So what does that mean for us in a wet Sunday night in Durham 2,000 years later? Well, you know, I think first and foremost, it means the same thing. I think it means we're called to live lives based on faith in Jesus. But actually for faith, I would read trust, realising we are utterly dependent on God. And actually that's good news because he'll make a better fist of things than we will. But actually, even when we've grasped that intellectually, I don't know about you, I find it really hard to live that out, or I could do for a bit and then I kind of take over and then I mess it up and then I make it back and repeat, wash, wash, rinse, repeat. 
And I just struggle to let go. But I also hold on to the deep truth that whenever I've really been struggling, I always found I could trust God. Because I think when we hit the bottom, whatever it took us there, whether it's suffering, anxiety, or loss, or fear, in that dark place, God is always waiting for us. And I think it's just as though when things are going well, we've got it all under control, everything's buttoned up, the spirit can't get in. Then the cracks start to open up and the spirit can get in the cracks. So if things are going well in your life, praise the Lord, but don't make that mistake. Open yourself up to a need to depend on God. And if they're tough right now, then please trust that however bad they get, God will be right there waiting for you. Because that unconditioned gift of Christ is still hoping for a response. It's inviting each of us into a relationship with God a response of gratitude and love to the one who loved us so much that he lived and died for us, whose resurrection brought life and hope. And if you've never felt able to make that response and you'd like to talk or pray with somebody afterwards, there'll be people waiting who'd be loved to pray with you at the chapel. But secondly, I think that acknowledgement of our utter dependence on God should take us out of our sense of independence altogether. One of the responses the modern Western world has to gifts is to be anxious because it puts a sense of obligation on us to other people. And somehow as though being totally independent is the only ultimate goal. But Christians know we aren't independent at all. I I hate to break it to you, if God stops holding you in being, you will stop breathing immediately. We are not remotely independent. So John Barclay's message about gift plays out in recognising not only our dependence on God, but our interdependence, our acknowledgement that we need each other. When I first came to Durham, I was a full-time student. I moved up from London, I'd had a busy job where I had very little free time, and I was living in a place where nobody knew their neighbours and you certainly wouldn't talk to them even if you did. It was London. And I'm also pretty impractical, so if I ever needed anything doing, I just had to pay somebody. So van drivers or plumbers, handymen, anything. But I'd remortgaged my flat to pay for my theology course. I'd just come to faith. I came to Durham, so I was skint and I didn't know anybody. I had one friend. So when things went wrong, I'd say to my friend, what do I do? And she said, look, ask people in church. She said, look, Keith is good at plumbing, and Sarah's got a big car. People will help you. Now, I was a new Christian, so I'm like, well, you can't really ask people to help you. But eventually, I had no choice. So I did, and I was blown away by the response. People were delighted to help me. But also, I learned something else. I learned that asking for help was the beginnings of a relationship with new people. Because you got talking to them, it became a basis of a conversation, you let them into your life, you admit some form of vulnerability, and then often it would free them up to ask for help from me in turn. And I think in a society which values freedom and independence above almost everything else, asking for help is a profoundly relational act. But that means help of every kind. So as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're walking our journey of discipleship together. So let's consciously support each other on that journey through personal conversations, through prayer, in small groups, in our new spiritual support groups, through bearing each other's burdens. And finally, as we reflect on the self-gift of Jesus, the one human who lived his life entirely for others, that response of loving gratitude spills out onto other people It does it by sharing the good news, by loving people in Jesus' name, in social action, in mission, in love. In fact, if I look behind you, one of my favourite verses in all of Scripture is 1 John 4.19, 
We love because he loved us first. I think that's our message from tonight, that Jesus is the ultimate gift given to save us, to give us life and reconnect us with God. And he didn't do it because we're good or kind or clever or sorted. He did it because he loved us and he still loves us. He loves you, each one of you, more than you can possibly imagine. Take that thought and ponder it in your heart because what a gift is that. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St. Nick's Durham podcast. If you'd like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St. Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.